Hey everybody, Chris Webster here to talk about one of the latest supporters to the Archaeology Podcast Network, The Motley Fool. Now, I've been investing in the stock market through various applications for a few years now, and everybody who's listening to this can benefit from that sort of investment for the long-term financial planning. And also, I know the hosts of these podcasts can benefit because as archaeologists, like none of us get retirement, <laughs> we all have to kind of fend for ourselves. So investing in the stock market is a good idea, but not everybody can do it. And look, we get it. The market is complicated and confusing, and to many of us, it simply doesn't make sense. In fact, where do you even start? Take all of the guesswork out of it with the Motley Fool Stock Advisor. The Motley Fool has been around for over 25 years and has been spot on in recommending some of the world's most important companies before they hit the big time. I'm talking about Amazon, Tesla, Netflix, Starbucks, all before they exploded in value. With their easy to use and super informative service, Stock Advisor, you could join the ranks before they potentially find the next big thing. After all, their average stock recommendation is up over 400% as of April 10th, 2023. And no need to be intimidated by financial jargon or market complexities. As the name suggests, these guys don't take themselves too seriously. Now, finances, that's a different story. Their friendly and relaxed approach has helped over 700,000 people move closer to financial independence, all while beating the market and having fun. New members can access Stock Advisor for only $89 for their first year, a full $110 off the full list price. Don't sit on the sidelines and think about what could have happened. Visit fool.com slash APN to start your investing journey today. That's $110 discount off of $199 per year list price. Membership will renew annually at the then current list price. So again, check the link in the show notes of this episode. We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the Archaeology Show. TAS goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories about archaeology and the history around us. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Show, episode 110. On today's show, we talk about 3,000-year-old royal purple textile, Neanderthal teeth with homo sapien characteristics, and the Chumash using shell beads as currency up to 2,000 years ago. Let's dig a little deeper. Welcome to the show, everyone. And as usual, I am Chris Webster, and I'm joined by my wife, Rachel Rudden. Hello. And we are recording, just because I like to say where we're at, uh, <laughs> because we're always in some place different, but we were recording from Fort Myers Beach, Florida in the beginning of February, and we're about to have a wicked thunderstorm, so I don't know if that's going to happen while we're recording or not, but who knows? Could be. Yeah, we'll see. It doesn't look real great out there. Also, we're what, maybe two hours south of where the Super Bowl is about to happen today, too? <laughs> yeah. So our plan is to basically just not leave the RV today. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Especially since the Super Bowl is already being called a super spreader event and hasn't even happened yet. Ooh, because yeah. Because people are gathering, so. Yep, no, we'll stay away from that. We're, as usual, isolated in our RV thinking about archaeology news and events. <laughs> so there you go. Yeah, and I am so excited about this first article. I definitely picked this one out specifically and I turned to you and I said, I found this article. I don't care what you want to talk about on the archaeology show this week, but this article is one of them because it is something that is so near and dear to my heart. It is all about dyed textile. And if you guys know anything about me from previous episodes, you know that yarn and knitting is a passion of mine. And recently there was an article or there was a discovery of purple dyed fabric in Israel. And the reason that this is so exciting is because it is the oldest example of dyed 
textile and yarn, or actually I think it was wool fibers, but the oldest example of this found in, I think the world at this point, it's very rare to find this stuff. And this is a super, super old example, 3000 years ish old. So obviously I'm very excited. Yeah. And a lot of people reported on this. We'll link to a couple different articles, one from the independent and one from Sci news and, they were all reported near the end of January 2021. Mm-hmm. There's some good pictures from the excavation. And, you know, kind of the interesting thing is where this is discovered in Israel, people are always looking for the, I guess, the palace of King David. Yeah. And, uh, you know, King David was in the Bible, you know, regardless of what you think about the Bible and religion, David was a real person. Mm-hmm. So there is that, uh, or at least we think he was, because there's plenty of other historical references to King David, right. not just in the Bible, right. uh, and King Solomon as well. And this was dis- discovered around that time, and people are looking, and since this was such a rare color because of the, we'll talk about this later, but because of the difficulty in obtaining yeah, this Yeah, like color. the manufacturing process to yeah. get this color is really difficult. Yeah, they said this is worth more than if you were to find gold. Like yeah. This color is worth more than gold, a colored dyed fabric of this type. Yeah, it's like that true royal purple, and there's a picture of it that we'll link to, but it's just like the most beautiful shade of like purple violet almost it's Mm -hmm. so vibrant and i can't believe that i'm looking at something that is three thousand years old obviously it was incredibly well preserved to have such a beautiful tone and color to it and it's just so cool to see that because i like seek out that color with non-natural dyes and to know that that purple was created with a natural dye just like made my my wool and knitter and yarn dyer heart just so excited and happy (laughs) now i don't know if i read this as closely as you did maybe they don't even mention this you got to go back to the plus one journal article but Mm -hmm. does it say what kind of fabric it is well i saw that there was a tassel it looked like a a bit of a of woven fabric and then the picture that i saw is of the actual like wool fibers it's like a just like a, a handful of unprocessed wool fibers that have been dyed Like, what's the story with that, I wonder? With this being an archaeological site, I'm not really sure what the site actually is and and what this archaeological site is, but why would you have unspun just fibers laying on the ground? Yeah, that is interesting. If they're so valuable. Right. So, the site itself is an ancient copper production district, and I don't know what... They don't really go into detail as to where specifically in this district it was, but it's... It's a sort of an industrial area, if you can call it that, for 3,000 years ago. It's where they're producing things. And in this copper production district, they had previously found pots that had remnants of the purple dye in it. And also the snails that they use themselves to extract the color from, Mm -hmm. they found remnants of those snails as well. So they knew that they were doing something with the purple dye in this area, but they hadn't found any evidence specifically of the final product, the textile, if you will. So finding this woven fabric remnants and the tassel shows that end product and then finding the wool dyed with it, that tells me that they were dyeing the wool before they even spun it into fiber, which is super interesting because oftentimes today we're dyeing wool that has already been spun. It gives you more flexibility like you can buy a whole bunch of undyed fiber and then dye it to whatever color you want and be on your merry way with your project but it sounds like 
back in the day, perhaps they were dyeing the unspun wool first and then spinning it. Maybe they got better depth of color. Maybe they, maybe it was a better use of the dye itself to dye the wool first. I'm not really sure why they would do that, but you can do it either way. And that was, this is evidence of that process right there. So could have been just economics too. Maybe the, the person or company for lack of a better way to say Mm -hmm. that, but the organization or whoever that was sourcing these mollusks and, and doing the distillation process to get that color was the source of the dye for this, but then they sent it off to somebody else to get spun. Like they sold yeah. it to get spun. Yeah, and yeah. I imagine they had some control over what type of yarn they were spinning the the wool into. So it could have been very thin for very finely woven garments. It could have been a little thicker for something warmer. And there's a lot of options. So, so dyeing the wool first gave them that flexibility to spin the wool specifically for whatever final product they were trying to create. Mm-hmm. So, and I guess there could be some reason for like decorative pers- purposes to leave some of it unspun as well. Although I'm really like, I'm really struggling to think of what that would be because you can use unspun wool fibers as like stuffing and even as like felted on decoration, but I just can't imagine they were doing anything like that back then. So right. maybe scratch that idea. It's probably not what they were doing, <laughs> but yeah, maybe, I, mean, I don't knows? know. Yeah. I don't know. One thing I think is cool with this highly advanced technique of not necessarily technique of dyeing, but the the technique of extracting from the mollusks. And mm-hmm. you got to be in an area where you can find those snails. Yep. And then not only that, but have the understanding for how to get it out of them. Like, what do you boil them? Or do you just make them scare themselves <laughs> and they excrete the dye? I mean, what do you do? I don't but, know. I read a little bit about the process, but it sounds like they're, they extract whatever they use to make the dye. They extract it from glands near the rectum of these Mediterranean snails. So squeezing purple dye out of snail butts? I don't know. (laughs) What if that kills the snail or if he could just harvest a bunch of snails and then squeeze it out of them and let them grow some more? I'm not, I don't know. I would It's along the same lines of squid ink, probably. Actually, yeah. They must be killing them because if they could reuse these snails over and over to get more out, then it wouldn't be so rare. You know, they would have yeah. they would Unless have snail the farms yeah. producing this stuff if it were if it were right. a re- renewable resource, if you will. Hmm. So my guess is that it was not renewable at all and that they had to kill them to get it. The interesting thing about this site and this this area right here is it was a vast copper mine, they said, a vast ancient copper mine. Yeah. And it also says that this is the Iron Age equivalent of modern day oil. Uh, copper smelting required advanced expert understanding that was a guarded secret, and those who held the knowledge were considered high-tech experts of the time. So in this one area, you've got people smelting copper, which is apparently really crazy thing to do, mm-hmm. and not very many people knew how to do it. But you also have people doing this like high-tech purple dye thing, which was rare. Yeah, so and what I'm was going sh- on here? Well, I'm sure it was closely guarded secret as well to be... To oh, be yeah. such a highly valued product. Oh, you don't want just product. peasants having purple. Yeah, no, obviously. That's yeah. only for the kings <laughs> <laughs> and the royals. Purple yeah. is so special. Uh, yeah, but I think it's I think it's really cool that they finally found actual fabric and and wool. Now, let's, let's talk about why the purple was so sought after. Didn't people have probably just by accident, basic understanding of like the color wheel. Can't you make purple from mixing other colors? Well, I think with natural dyeing, it's just a little bit less reliable because of course they can make blue with indigo 
and they could make red probably. There's various... There's lots of ways to make red. I think it comes from like a bug that you can grind up and turn into red, and there's some other options too. Yeah, ochre in this side of the world. Yeah, that too. Yeah, so... iron-based stuff. Yeah, yeah. So there's lots of ways to make red, but I'm not sure it would make a reliably bright and vibrant purple, Mm -hmm. not like the one that, that these create. So that's probably why... Also, dyeing yarn is just, it's such a chemically complex process for ancient societies to be doing because you can't just dump a bunch of yarn or fiber or whatever into a pot and call it good. You can with some things like indigo, you can do that because it has a natural substance in it that will bind to the fabric or the yarn. But not everything has that, and you have to add what's called a mordant to it. And the mordant, what we use these days is like a, it's like an aluminum type of thing, uh, aluminum sulfate. But I don't know what they would have used back in ancient times as as a mordant, because obviously I don't think they knew how to get their hands on something like aluminum sulfate. But basically, you need another chemical to truly permanently bind the dye particles to the wool or the cotton or the flax or whatever it is that you're trying to dye. And wool and animal fibers are way easier to dye than cotton and plant fibers are too. So that's another like complex thing that's happening. So anyway, the whole process is quite complex. And I would be interested to know more about chemically how they do it because that would have made it even harder to do and then therefore more valuable end product. Yeah, I suppose so. Yep. So, all right. Well, we are going to take a short break and transition from purple dye in royalty to a little bit older Neanderthals and humans having sex. I don't <laughs> think there was any purple involved there. I mean, probably not, but hey, never <laughs> counted out. We all know that Neanderthals are, are much more than we have given them credit for. So, that's true. That's true. And apparently, <laughs> The homo sapien women felt the same way. So, and maybe the men. I don't know how, which direction it went, but we're going to talk about that on the other side of the break. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30 percent off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code tas waiting on a tax return hopefully it ends up in your hands fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30 percent in 2023 if you're in a bind this tax season lifelock can help our u.s-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues and all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Welcome back to the Archaeology Show, Segment 2, Episode 110. And now we're shifting gears, as I said, and we're going to... Well, we're going to the UK, sort of. And we are going to Neanderthals and Homo sapiens. And I say we're going to the UK, sort of, because it's not sort of. It really is the it UK. It is the UK, but yeah. It really didn't feel like it. I it's we're going to an island called Jersey, which I would assume is old Jersey. I don't know if the people who started New Jersey <laughs> came from Jersey, but I don't know. 
This island is part of a island chain called the Channel Islands, and it's between England and France, uh, the southern end of England and France. And from Jersey, which is the largest island in this chain, first off, I don't know which islands are are independently governed by who, but Jersey is one island. There's another item, island next door that's probably the next biggest one called Guernsey. There's another mm-hmm. island next door where there's like no cars and it's just like a monastery and some people that live there. Uh, I, I can't remember what the name of that island is, but I've been there too. But I spent time on Jersey about probably three months when I was between my last two years of college i won't say junior and senior year of college because that was like i was in like three senior years of college i think (laughs) i don't really know at this point but anyway my last two years of college i went there because i had a friend who was at the university of north dakota with me she ended up getting uh, deported (laughs) because she was a reporter and the news station just couldn't justify having her on and legally they had to they had to be able to do that, but their reporters are a dime a dozen, so uh, she got booted back to England. But she found a job with the BBC and said, come over anytime, so I did, and spent three months over there. And it was super cool. Got to see a lot of things, and one of the things I didn't see, though, because I didn't know it was there, was the Paleolithic site of Le Côte de Saint-Berlade in Jersey. And this was originally excavated... Well, the, the article we're going to talk about had an original excavation of 1910, 1911. So mm-hmm. people have been there working on this stuff for a long time. Before I go too much farther, though, let me give you a little brief history from my recollection of Jersey, which I think is super cool. I was there in 2004, and that was their 800-year anniversary <laughs> of basically independence because they were jointly ruled by England and France. And 800 years ago, well, 815, 16, 17 years ago, they were (laughs) given the choice basically by England, France. They're like, you know what? We're tired of fighting over you guys. So why don't you guys just choose? Oh, and they chose chose England. Okay. (laughs) So (laughs) while I was there, they had their big holiday that they have, which was their, I don't remember what they even called it, but some holiday that celebrates that independence. I guess it's probably just their independence day, mm-hmm. to be honest. Now, they're still under the UK, but they have their own money, and and, and yet you can still use pounds uh, there, wow. like British pounds, but they have their own branded Jersey money. Guernsey has its own money. Mm-hmm. Guernsey's also independently run. Mm-hmm. I think they have like maybe a seat in Parliament or something like that uh, in the UK, but they're not like a county or whatever you would call it of England. They're mm-hmm. just, I don't know, maybe it's just like Scotland. Mm. I couldn't tell you. I don't know. Did Scotland have its own money? I don't even remember. Or did mm. we just use British pounds? Don't we just use pounds? Yeah. Well, mm. Jersey has its own money. It's really strange. Yeah, that's Another interesting. Cool Another cool thing about Jersey, which really brings us along, is... Uh, when, at low tide, you can practically walk to France. Now, you'd have to walk pretty quick because the tide, you know, I don't think you could get there slogging through the water quick enough. But Yeah, but that's interesting, move, though. Well, the real interesting thing is in the time period that we're talking about when Neanderthals and humans, you know, 30 plus thousand years ago, mm-hmm. were coexisting together in this area, at various points in various ice age cycles, you could legit walk from England to right. France. Like even 6,000 years ago, there was connected lands where you could walk from England to France. And then there's been lots of, people like to think of the last ice age as like the ice age, but there's been thousands Many of, of ice them. ages. Yeah. And at the, in the Paleolithic, uh, during that cycle, water levels were lower and you could legit just walk straight across the English Channel in various points. I think at the south end and at the north end, yeah, uh, it was connected. Yeah. I When I first read this article, I was like, wait, Neanderthal in Jersey? Like how in the world? But How'd they get there? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, that totally makes sense that at some point they were able to just walk there. That's, yeah. that's the only thing that makes sense. So that's super cool yeah. that that was 
that that was how they got there. And, and it turned into this really neat site that was excavated in 1910 to 1911. And in that excavation, which is what we're, we're getting to, that is the recent interesting information is in that excavation, they found Neanderthal teeth that are from two individuals. I think they originally thought it was one individual, but then upon re-examining them, they found that it's from two individuals. They are about 48,000 years old, and they have characteristics of both Neanderthal and Homo sapien. Another thing I think is really interesting on this is this was a re-examined collection. Now, I don't know mm-hmm. if there was intent on doing this or when this actually this re-examination actually happened. This was a relatively recently published article. It's, it's technically March 2021, Journal of Human Evolution, so we'll, we'll link to that. Mm-hmm. But, and, I, and I don't know what the cycle was for getting this in there, but we've been talking on the Archaeotech podcast about how research is different right now because people didn't have field seasons over the summer (laughs) so there was no excavating pretty much anywhere on the planet and a lot of collections could be getting reanalyzed or going over stuff that they haven't seen in a while and i'd like to i'd like to see if if this is one of those things i don't know if we can know that or not but this is the kind of cool research that we can get out of re-examining old collections because you can't just you can't assume that something was a accurately described Mm -hmm. i mean the, lo- the farther you go in history and the more people that have looked at it, you can probably assume that. But there's lots of interpretations on things. And also, we know a heck of a lot more about Neanderthals and Homo sapiens than we did in 1910 and 11. And in fact, we didn't even know about Neanderthals in 1910 and 11. Well, we did. We did know about them. They were discovered, I think, in the 1800s in Germany. But the information probably yeah. wasn't... We didn't have as many sample specimens to be able to really talk about that. Yeah, and I don't think that people in 1910 for sure, and even not until you know the last decade or so, I'm not sure that people would have been willing to accept that there was interbreeding between Homo sapiens and Neanderthals because it was just something that was kind of taboo to think mm-hmm. of cavemen, you know, interbreeding with our Homo sapien ancestors. Like that's just not something that. I think people's minds could even go to, but now there's just more and more evidence of that happening. And these teeth, while they, it's morphology that we're looking at here, so it's Mm -hmm. not DNA or anything like that, but the teeth have very homo sapien characteristics, but the roots and the shape are very Neanderthal. So it's just this sort of combination of the two, which really shows that there probably was some, some, you know, crossbreeding going on between the two species, which is really neat. Yeah, and the interesting thing about Neanderthals too is they're they're often not seen as a species or variant of Homo mm-hmm. that is on the Homo sapien line because there were there seems to be, you know, as the human evolutionary tree branches out, there is not a straight line. We're not a straight stick, like, you know, well, we're not a straight line down to our earliest common ancestor with uh, the common ancestor we share with chimpanzees. So, you know, we're, we're also not related to chimpanzees, so let's not even go there. We share a common ancestor with right. chimpanzees. They have their own complicated tree to deal with. Right. And then we have our own complicated tree. And it all goes back to, you know, a couple of beings 20 million years ago that said, hey, you look good. You look good. Let's do this thing. <laughs> and, and then they had a viable ancestor, right? And then it just yeah. went from there. So now... 
Homo neanderthalensis is on the Homo line, but again, not thought to be directly related mm -hmm. to Homo sapiens. Like they didn't evolve into Homo sapiens. Right. Homo sapiens killed them off, and Homo erectus killed them off. Right. As Homo erectus evolved into uh, other things, uh, I think Homo erectus and Homo habilis, maybe. No, I think it was Homer. I can't remember which one, but they were, you know, there's also, there's a whole bunch of different ones, but yeah. they all, you know, none of them like Neanderthals from the sounds of the archaeological record. Yeah. And they're not, they haven't been considered a direct line, but DNA evidence in the, in the last 10, 20 years has pointed to a lot of Neanderthal DNA in some primary populations of mm -hmm. the United States, not the United States, of the world. Mm -hmm. And now this just goes further to support that theory yeah. that- I would say it's not necessarily a missing link because they're not necessarily a link in a direct line of descent, but their DNA is at influence on mm -hmm. our evolution for sure. Yeah, they definitely are a contributing factor to what, you know, humans eventually evolved into. And I think that it's it's time to stop disregarding them as being just the stupid cavemen. They're not sure. I'm sure they were that. But <laughs> I mean. But they also, you know, as we discussed before, they made string, you know? So, like... They made string. They made instruments. Yeah. Uh, sounds like they made music. They yep. buried their dead in some in some later yep. instances. I mean, Neanderthals, more than likely... I mean, they had their own culture, for lack of a better word. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't be surprised if there was a lot of cultural sharing as well. I'm not going to say Neanderthals and humans or Homo sapiens necessarily lived in the same camps together. Right. But then again, why not? You yeah. Know? And, and mating mating doesn't always imply consensual mating either. I mean, There's a lot of that going on. Yeah. You know, it was very animalistic back then still. And, you know, sometimes, you know, I'm sure they would, I don't know if they would have even have called it rape back then, but it was probably rape. Mm -hmm. And uh, like, again, not necessarily non-consensual, but when you got a bunch of hairy beings together, can you really tell one part from the other? It, it definitely um, brings up the question of these offspring of, of Neanderthal and Homo sapien, like what was, what was life like for them? Cause they, they clearly would have looked different to both I wonder if it didn't matter what they looked like and they just were part of the group and that's fine. I wonder, were they ostracized because they looked different? So that would be a behavioral thing that we'll probably never know the answer to, but it is an interesting thing to wonder about. Well, and again, it's not like they had haircuts back then. And I'm saying that because, sure, they would have looked different in their younger years or maybe they would have looked so close to both species because presumably it wasn't just the teeth, but maybe they look close enough to both that they weren't that different. Maybe. You know? Because Homer, Homo sapien, even older 30, 45,000 year old Homo sapien, didn't look exactly like we do today. There's still been evolution happening. It's really slow, but they would have looked more Neanderthal than we do, right? Mm -hmm. Even though they weren't. But they would have looked more along the less Homo sapien line. I mean, Homo sapien, I think we go back at least 200,000 years for calling a species Homo sapien. So there'd already been a lot of development down that line, but, and we're, we're closer to when this was found than, than to the origin of Homo sapiens. But, and I don't know even the current research, maybe it even goes farther back than that, but mm -hmm. Neanderthals are also really old and have been around for a long time. And again, sure, they had the pronounced brow ridges and, they had some other traits. I think they were just slightly bigger and bulkier, but you also have bigger and bulky humans, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, yeah. aside from the facial traits, and then and then once the child would have grown up, I mean, they'd have been just as 
just as scraggly and hairy as their ancestors, right? As as the people around them. So would you even have known something different when you've got crazy eyebrows and hair covering your face? Yeah. You know? Yeah, who knows? So But yeah, these are these are very interesting. And I think the one other thing that made this article super interesting to me is that you can't assume that you found the one special example yeah. of something. Had to be common. It had to be common. So the fact that they found these teeth that show both traits, both Neanderthal and Homo sapien, that means that there must have been a lot more of that out there. So yeah. I'm guessing there's just a lot of mixing between the two, especially at that transition zone right before Neanderthals completely died out. These are 48,000 years old, and Neanderthals, I think, are generally accepted they were completely is extinct the right word or gone by no they were extinct extinct by about 40,000 years ago so this is getting into that transition time but maybe rather than thinking of them as going extinct it was more like they were absorbed into the homo sapien population or at least whatever traits got passed along from all of the uh, interbreeding that happened those got absorbed into the homo sapien population right one thing that's interesting about putting this in the not common category because normally I'd agree with that Mm -hmm. if you find something like this it it must be common right because what is the chance you're going to find the needle in the haystack yeah but there's there's really one thing that that lends it to not well two things that lend it to not being that first off we don't have a lot of examples of this from what I'm aware of Mm -hmm. and there are Neanderthals and Homo sapiens all across Europe right yeah that's true if we haven't really found a lot of example of this before why why haven't we found that, right? Mm-hmm. The other thing is, as I said, Jersey's an island. Oh, yeah. So yeah, I if, know where you're going. <laughs> if these people happen to live here during one of the time periods where it was really difficult to cross, yeah. then these populations wouldn't really have had that much of a choice. Mm-hmm. I mean, I bicycled around Jersey in a day, mm-hmm. right? So you could walk across the whole island in a pretty short period of time. I yeah. mean, it would take you the whole day to go, uh, if you were to go straight across. But, yeah. And you could have. There wasn't a lot of veg back then either, probably. Yeah. I think there's probably more trees now than there was in the past because it's like a windswept island in the in the Channel Islands. Mm-hmm. Of course, I don't know what the faunal assemblage, or the uh, floral assemblage was back mm-hmm. in there, or even the faunal one for that matter. I know they had fishing technology. There's fish hooks that have been found that are that old, but... Uh, and probably smaller animals. But even mm-hmm. if there was land, I think that land between Jersey and France, unless it was dry for a really long time, was probably more marshy. Yeah. And, yeah. and periods of wet with maybe even bigger streams going by. Because you did have the English Channel on both sides of it. Mm-hmm. And you did have, you know periods where there would have been water there Mm -hmm. so we'd have to look farther back and take some other resources and say well what was the geographical situation here at the time yeah because there's one other option too is not that there was both neanderthal and homo sapiens on the island but maybe it was just neanderthals but because they were on an island Mm -hmm. and there's inbreeding probably because it's a small population if they did get locked in by water and they weren't really able to get off the island, then you can get some really funky stuff that happens with island populations. Yeah. It, genetic drift, I think it's called, right? And yeah. And there's just, there's, I'm, I'm reaching back to my school days when I was studying evolution, but definitely like there could be some weird evolution that happened in the population, yeah. which could get, which could have resulted independently in these teeth that look a little bit more homo sapien, but they aren't related to crossbreeding at all. So that is also an option. Right. All right. Well, that's enough on that. We're going to switch gears entirely for segment three and come back to the United States and talk about 
using beads as currency. Back in a minute. You may have heard my pitch for membership. It's a great idea and really helps out. However, you can also support us by picking up a fun t-shirt, sticker, or something from a large selection of items from our T Public store. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash shop for a link. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop to pick up some fun swag and support the show. The JCPenney Friends and Family Sale is back. And this week, we're passing the savings on to you. Use your extra 30% off coupon to prep your home and style your family for Easter. That's extra savings on top of our great low prices. Plus, share your coupon with everyone you know and love. It's always better when we save together. JCPenney, make everybody count. Offer valid 311 through 317. Exclusion supply. See store or jcp.com for details. Welcome back to the final segment of the Archaeology Show, episode 110. And as I said, we're moving to Southern California now, coastal Southern California, and the Chumash region. So the Chumash Indians were, I mean, prolific along the Southern coast. Lots of different tribes of the Chumash and uh, very influential on Southern California. And there's modern Chumash down there now, too. So uh, the Channel Islands, if you've ever heard of those, these are different Channel Islands that we just talked about. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're right off, like we've seen the Channel Islands actually from the water. If you go out, well, I have actually, I sailed out of Long Beach one time mm-hmm. and you can see Catalina, which is on uh, one of the Channel Islands. And in mm-hmm. fact, if you have an Apple computer and you had the Mac OS Catalina version, the screens, the desktop image was one of those islands. Oh, there you go. Yeah, so... <laughs> But the the Chumash were, again, very prolific along there. And we're talking about an article that was published in the Journal of Anthropological Archaeology in December of 2020 by Lynn Gamble. And it's called The Origin and Use of Shell Bead Money in in California. So shell beads, beads made from shells, Mm -hmm. uh, are just everywhere in in not only just California, but in surrounding states as well. Mm -hmm. And in fact, didn't we, I'm just now having a memory, didn't we find a bead in northwestern Nevada on a project, on a survey? I thought we found a shell bead and some people were looking up shell bead resources and trying to figure out if it was a true mass shell bead. Yep, that does sound familiar. So, yeah. Well, I mean, Lynn, in this article, she mentions that, I mean, this was used to pay pay debts all the way up in, you know, the northwest coast of California mm-hmm. and presumably beyond. Maybe we just haven't found them yet. Mm-hmm. But the I, I guess the initial thoughts on this was using shell beads for money initially started around 800 years ago, but she's proposing that they started a thousand years earlier, around 2000 years before present. Mm-hmm. And she also mentioned ethno-historic and ethnographic sources documenting currency used. Now, those can only go back so far. Right. You know, you have to... There's a lot of oral history amongst tribes because mm-hmm. they didn't have a written history, many of them. So there's a lot of oral history. But it has also been pretty well documented that oral history can change through time. Yeah. Just by the storytellers, right? I mean, mm-hmm. people tell them and tell them and tell them, but one tiny little detail gets changed. And after the 500th retelling, that tiny detail yeah. becomes part of the Things part of the story change, yeah sure. so not not to say that they're all completely inaccurate there is some nuggets of truth in those oral histories i'm sure of it but there can be inaccuracies that go along so when you're trying to figure out something like this it's one line of evidence mm-hmm. and you got to go to the archaeology find additional lines of evidence to support those oral histories so that's where we're at yeah i think it's really interesting because it by pushing back the date of the use of currency back, you know, 1,200 years to, to 2,000 years before present now, it's taking tribes that were primarily hunter-gatherer 
and giving a more sophisticated society to them because money and currency wouldn't have really been of much use to just a basic hunter-gatherer tribe. So we definitely had a more complex societal structure going on if they're using currency that far back. So for me, this type of story, that's what's really interesting about this type of story. Like, of course, shell beads as currency. Yeah, that's just something that we've known about. But pushing it back that far, it changes how you look at these tribes that were probably considered a little bit more primitive, which primitive is a problematic word, obviously, but they were considered more primitive because they were more hunter-gatherer based. So, Now, some of you might be wondering, because I'm just wondering this right now, also that storm we mentioned in segment one is starting to approach, and I'm hearing it on the roof of our RV. Yes. And it's getting dramatically darker here. It really is. (laughs) And it's not even noon yet. But anyway, you got to think about what defines a currency, right? Because why isn't this just trade? Mm -hmm. We think of currency as money, Mm -hmm. as coins, as paper, as gold, silver, things that we find precious, right? Mm -hmm. Even jewels like diamonds and stuff. But now you start getting into the realm of actual currency when you start talking about that stuff. Because currency, to me, is something that's, and again, not really looking up the the proper definitions of these things from a prehistoric (laughs) standpoint, but currency is something I think that that if you give me beads for something that I either gave you mm-hmm. in trade uh, as, a, as you, you know, maybe I made you a canoe because you don't know how. Right. Or you've got, you know, a broken arm or something like that. And I've got to hunt for you. I've got to do something. And you have all these beads. And you're like, hey, listen, I'll give you all these beads to do this. Yeah. That's trade. That's, yeah. That's trade. But if I then take those beads and get something else with them, mm-hmm. maybe something I couldn't get myself or just don't want to get myself, mm-hmm. then... Those and then and then that that person takes those beads and they keep going and it just keeps going. The Uh beads keep shifting hands. That becomes currency. That becomes currency because it's something that people want and they're willing to trade either other things or services or whatever for it. Right. And culturally, those beads start having a value. Now it starts becoming well, you know, ten beads gets me this, but twenty beads gets me this. Yeah. You know. The, the development of that system is is very interesting. And I will, I'll say here because we're, we're taking a guess at how this developed, obviously, mm-hmm. because we don't know the behavior behind what happened to, to create this currency. But Miss Gamble here does have four criteria that she uses for assessing whether beads are used for currency or for just simple you know, jewelry oh, yeah. or adornment, right? That's right, because they say some beads may have just been currency and other beads were yeah. just, Yeah, you know, and whatever. you have to differentiate them when you come across them yeah. when you're out there doing the actual archaeology. So her four criteria, I'm going to read this from this article here. Number one is shell beads used as currency should be more labor-intensive than those for decorative purposes. Highly standardized beads are likely currency. Bigger eye-catching beads were more likely used as decoration. And currency beads are widely distributed. So that's how she said to approach analyzing beads when you find them in the field and Mm -hmm. deciding whether or not they were for adornment or for currency. Yeah, that's interesting because if you're going to adorn yourself with some fancy (laughs) beads, couldn't you make something that you could also trade or sell? What do you trade or sell it for? More beads? It gets real complicated, doesn't it? It does because it, it... it actually gets really personal too, because if you have a whole bunch of shells that you want to turn into beads, then you are you looking at them like, well, I just want to like look pretty tomorrow, so I'm going to make a necklace, or are you looking at them as something that you can make for 
trading or, or yeah. using this currency. So, and I imagine that would become a very personal decision, but uh, I'm not really sure. Well, what about the rarity of the shells too? Because that's another thing that makes something more valuable mm-hmm. and makes something work as a currency. That's why gold has always been a standard. You know, mm-hmm. like coins were actually gold back in the day, right? Right. Like, like they were actually um, like blends of gold, gold. Yeah. yeah, or or pure gold or something yeah. like that, or or silver. You know, whatever. Yep. And technically, our currency also represents gold. If you've got a five dollar bill in your hand, that remains that represents. Well, we don't really use this strict gold standard anymore because inflation has really wiped that out. But mm-hmm. back in, it used to represent a certain quantity of gold. Mm-hmm. And, you, and at some point in our history, you could go to the treasury office or to a bank and exchange that for gold. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's just like what it represented. That was called the gold standard. And for a long time, when we started having paper money because it was too difficult to carry gold or gold became worth less and less so you had to have something to represent it because i mean how many grams of gold can you really give somebody right you know and, and it was just more difficult to handle like that and that's where inflation comes in is is ten dollars now an ounce of gold i mean it's obviously way more than that but just for easy numbers mm-hmm. is ten dollars an ounce of gold now or is twenty dollars or is thirty dollars so looking at that I bet inflation was driven by climate change mm-hmm. in the Chumash, right? So they were around doing this for presumably 2,000 years and, and probably, you know, usually older than we estimate. It's just, you know, we go back as far as we have proof for, which means something developed before that. But mm-hmm. the trade in these beads and the rarity of these beads, these shell beads, they're based on shells. And mm-hmm. in order to find these shells, you have to go to the places where these shells are. And these shells are living creatures. Mm-hmm. And their livelihood is dependent on sea temperatures and predators, and everything is dependent on the climate and how many of these shells are being made and produced. How hard are they to gather? How hard are they to, you know, get the little creature out and make them into a fancy little shell bead? Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, what is the work involved to do this? And... You know how does yeah how does that change their value? And you're talking about like processing the shells into currency or beads, but it makes me wonder: Are they using the ones that just wash up on shore and are just already empty of any yeah. any animals, or are they taking the shells that are left over from food? You know, gathering or food production? Are they using those shells or are they actually like finding, like diving into the ocean and finding shells that are pristine? You know, well, we so go to the rarity of it, right? Yeah. I mean, we were just on a beach in South Florida here yesterday where there were the shell beds along this along this shore were just phenomenal. In fact, mm-hmm. we were there looking for shark teeth because a lot of stuff just washes up in a really strict, crazy cycle. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of beaches are just relatively clean because they're nice and flat and they're long. This is a really steep beach. And as you were standing there, you could just see stuff wash up and then also get washed away. And there were thousands of different kinds of shells on the beach. Yeah. Tons of shell, like really thick shell beds washing, washing in. I just know, knowing how people prize rarity and that, that has been a trait for, I I think all of history, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, any anytime somebody has recognized value in something, rarity means more value, and mm-hmm. that's just because it's harder to get. If it's harder to process, harder to get, like purple mm-hmm. from segment one. Purple yep. was hard to get, therefore highly sought after and very expensive. Yeah. So I would just have to assume that the beads that they're trying to get here were the beads you just didn't find every day, or the beads that were either hard to get or the beads that were hard to process. Mm-hmm. You know, something like that. But I would think that those would be the ones that they would save for making jewelry and personal adornment. The shells that they're using to make currency, they they tend to all be, 
uniform and similar in size and shape and whatever processing techniques they use on them. But if they're so, easy to get, that devalues them. If I can, if I don't need but, to go well, trade for them, I can just go down to the beach and scoop them up. Well, I, I think it's the processing part that differentiates yeah. differentiates them, and you can see that a little bit up in the picture, like how round and and smooth down the edges are. Yeah. So I think that's part of the reason why, and not everybody was willing to go through the work and effort to to make the shells all look like that. Yeah. And that is what is interesting about this article too, is she took a look at shell beads from earlier and was like wait a minute we have a whole bunch of these that all look the same and they've been very standardized and it probably means that they were using them as currency that's right because otherwise why go to that effort yeah i know this uh storm i don't know if you can hear the rain on our roof now but it's gotten pretty intense yeah it's kind of pouring right now minutes, but Anyway, yeah, it's really interesting thinking about that. And I wonder when they stopped doing that, right? If we have ethnographic accounts, and ethnographic means some people who were doing this or had had direct knowledge of people doing this were interviewed by Westerners. That's typically what ethnographic accounts means. Mm-hmm. And, and this could have been done in the 1800s, 1700s in Southern California with, you know, early Spanish missionaries and conquistadors and people like that. I don't know where these stories come from, but... And, and like I said, there are Chumash people still there, right? There's still people that identify as Chumash. Mm-hmm. So the ethnographic accounts, I mean, how far back could those go? And were they still using yeah. beads as currency at that time? Or was stuff like the um, was the Little Dryas happened, I think, in the 1400s or something like that, uh, also known as the Dark Ages in Europe? And, mm-hmm. you know, all this time with this, this, this short period of climate change, I wonder if that would have taken the shell bean industry down and uh, caused a, a waning in those shells and even either made them more valuable or caused them to go to a different kind of currency for trade. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting to say because they're clearly not using shells for currency now. Right. You know, although there are Native American groups that make make things in the traditional style that they do sell. So in a way it's currency, but they're not it's really currency. Like, they're trading it for real money. It's more like <laughs> art at that point. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah so. that's what it's become. Yeah, yeah. Which really blurs the lines even back in the day. Because if you're also using beads, as we said, for jewelry and clothing, you know, like decoration on mm-hmm. clothing and stuff, weaving beads in, it's like, how is that not still kind of currency, right? If you just trade the if thing you, that you made. Yeah. You know? Like processed beads. I think I feel like that'd be more valuable. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of... It's all kind of wrapped up in there together because I'm sure you could take a really beautifully created necklace or something that you could wear on your body and mm-hmm. and trade that for right. whatever you need. So then it becomes kind of currency too. But right. yeah, there's a lot of twisted up stuff there. <laughs> so let's leave you with a, a little thought experiment. Let's say that COVID-20 hits. We're done with COVID-19. Oh, God. What a horrible thing to say. COVID-20 is the zombie (laughs) apocalypse. And our society is completely wiped out, right? Infrastructure, everything's gone. We we no longer have... You know, money as we think of it, mm-hmm. you're, we're basically living in tribes again, and we're just like, you know, on it's our the stand. Own. There's no, yeah, it's basically the stand. There's, there's no government. There's no anything, right. right? So there's no real national or international currencies or anything anymore. Mm-hmm. What do you think we'd use as currency now? What would be the valued thing mm. that people want? I mean, and I'm not talking like food and resources. I'm talking we're 50 years into this thing, right? We're 50 years into this thing, so we're a generation or two in, and 
what would the would the currency batteries batteries you think you think tech is still a thing well 50 years Mm -hmm. in there's still going to be things interesting things that you could put batteries into and they would work like flashlights i mean if you keep a flashlight in good working condition all you need is a battery and that baby is working how about do one better solar panels Oh, <laughs> yeah, but you need batteries for the solar panels. Well, I mean, hopefully the lithium's still kicking back that <laughs> yeah. up and then. The lead acids are probably well dead, but yeah. I don't know if the lithium will keep it keep it rolling. <laughs> I think we need to write a sci-fi fantasy series yeah. based on batteries as currency. <laughs> the, the church of the the church of the solar panel right. cult. <laughs> right. And then there's the reformed church of the solar panel cult. Oh my yeah. God. Yeah. Oh man. All deep, right. Well, that's this, a deep Monty Python that, reference. That went off the rails. <laughs> so <laughs> what do you think would be our currency 50 years after the next apocalypse? Yeah. And it happens now. The apocalypse happens now. I said apocalypse. The apocalypse <laughs> happens now. And 50 years go by. You're probably dead, so don't worry about it. But your kids. Yeah. What Or your grandkids, more likely. Like, what is their hot commodity? What is their currency? And I, I don't mean something that's just valued and treasured. Like, when we say solar panels and batteries, I'm not sure you'd be trading those for things, right? So currency has to be something that's not only rare, but also abundant. At the same time, right? Or mm-hmm. or involves some sort of processing because you're literally trading this for food. You're trading it for clothing. You're trading it for other supplies. Yeah. I don't think I would trade away my solar panels for anything, right? Unless we had enough solar panels that it was like not hard to find. Well, those. that's why it's got to be batteries, not solar panels. Yeah, yeah, probably. <laughs> right. So give me those triple A's. Wow. Wow. <laughs> I don't know what you're powering with the AAA, but (laughs) anyway. All right. Well, that's it for this episode. We're going to come back next week and talk about the Netflix movie, The Dig. So if you haven't seen it, go check it out. And if you want to know the punchline, because they don't actually mention it throughout the entire movie, but this is Sutton Who. Look up Sutton Who, H-O-O, which is a site in southeastern England. And it's probably one of the most important sites in all of England. Mm -hmm. And this is the story of the original discovery that kicked off 80 years of research at this place. So go check it out. Look up Sutton Who uh, at the beginning and you'll have a little better understanding of what they're finding and why it's so important and why it's cool. I wish they had gotten into that in the movie, but we'll talk about that next week. We will talk about that for sure. Yeah. So thanks for joining us and we will see you next time. Thanks for listening to The Archaeology Show. Feel free to comment and view the show notes on the website at www.archpodnet.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ArcPodNet. You can also find us on the Lyceum app, a podcast app just for educational podcasts. Music for this show is called I Wish You Would Look from the band Sea Hero. Again, thanks for listening and have an awesome day. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info. 
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Oh. 